So the reading is John chapter 6, verses 1 to 21. Sometime after this, Jesus crossed to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee, that is, the Sea of Tiberias. And a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the miraculous signs he had performed on the sick. Then Jesus went up on a mountainside and sat down with his disciples. The Jewish Passover feast was near. When Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming towards him, he said to Philip, Where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? He asked this only to test him, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. Philip answered him, Eight months' wages would not buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. Another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. Here is a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish. But how far will they go among so many? Jesus said, Make the people sit down. There was plenty of grass in that place, and the men sat down, about five thousand of them. Jesus then took the loaves, gave thanks, and distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish. When they had all had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, Gather the pieces that are left over, let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and filled twelve baskets with the pieces of the five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. After the people saw the miraculous sign that Jesus did, they began to say, Surely this is the prophet who is to come into the world. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. When evening came, his disciples went down to the lake, where they got into a boat and set off across the lake for Capernaum. By now it was dark, and Jesus had not yet joined them. A strong wind was blowing, and the waters grew rough. When they had rowed three or three and a half miles, they saw Jesus approaching the boat, walking on the water, and they were terrified. But he said to them, It is I, don't be afraid. Then they were willing to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat reached the shore where they were heading. This is God's word. Well, thanks very much for your welcome. It's fantastic to be here, and uh, uh, I hope you all had a good first night's sleep. Um, It's so nice to be meeting uh, everybody. I knew one or two of you already before I came. Um, and uh, look forward to getting to know everybody uh, over the course of uh, our time together. Um, Sometimes it's easier to remember things that happened to us when we were kids than to remember what happened last week. I I heard a story about a couple of old gentlemen, very elderly gentlemen, who were sitting chatting in a chair at one of their homes uh, a while ago, and uh, one of them was saying to the other... um, we went to see the most, my wife and I went to see the most marvellous film last week. And, um, oh yes, what was that? Says the other chap. Ah, oh, says, what was it? Tip of my tongue, tip of my tongue. Uh, uh, a plant, uh, a, a, a plant with, with, with flowers and, uh, and, uh, and sort of thorns on the, uh, on the stems. Uh, uh, Rose, 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 what was the name of the film that we saw <laughs> last week? Now, sometimes it is easier to remember what happened to us as kids than what happened last week. That's what a man called uh, Irenaeus said. Irenaeus lived at the end of the second century AD, and he recounts an experience when, as a young boy, 
he listened to an old man called Polycarp. And Polycarp would love to reminisce about how he knew John the Apostle. And Irenaeus actually talked about how Polycarp remembered their words and what were the things concerning the Lord which he'd heard from them, including his miracles and his teaching. Wouldn't you like to have been a fly on the wall, listening to Polycarp reminisce about John, reminisce about Jesus? Well, the lovely thing is we can be flies on the wall because, uh, and in a more direct sense, because, of course, John wrote down uh, a full account of the life of the Lord Jesus, an eyewitness account. Actually, not a full account because he tells us he's selected out uh, the most important things, the things we need to hear. But he tells us he wrote as an eyewitness. And at the end of John's gospel, you'll know that his gospel is signed off by some other people who say, we know his testimony is true. And in John's Gospel, we meet the Lord Jesus up close and personal. That's what we're going to be doing over these four sessions. And we're going to be focusing on this one chapter, chapter 6. And chapter 6 starts with something which is familiar, which is the feeding of the 5,000. And I guess most of us could retell that story with our eyes shut. But it moves on to something which is much less familiar to us, and I think much less well-known, which is the significance of that story for our lives today. And as I mentioned last night when Matt was interviewing me, um, the, it, it, it interests me that John spends only a relatively short amount of time retelling the story, but a great deal of time giving us Jesus' words preached in a synagogue in Capernaum, unpacking its significance. We're going to see that in John chapter 6, we reach the very heart of what Christianity is all about with some very big and fresh lessons. If you look at J.C. Ryle's expository thoughts on the Gospels, uh, and he has three volumes on John, he said this, there are probably very few chapters of the Bible which contain as many deep things as the sixth chapter of St. John. And some quite hard things. We're going to see there are some things which are going to take us uh, some effort to understand and to absorb and which are quite, uh, in a sense, countercultural as well. So today we start at the beginning and we're going to look at these two amazing uh, miracles, uh, the feeding of the 5,000 and the walking on the water. And the outline is there in those yellow books that Sharon's put together. Let's start with the feeding of the 5,000. The three things, I think, which we can pick out, which John wants us to know. Uh, there are probably more things than that, but here are three things I noticed in preparing this. And the first is this. This is a miracle on a grand scale. We mustn't let familiarity with this story, this true story, dull our senses. It clearly amazed the people who were there at the time. John sets the scene. Sometime after this, Jesus crossed to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee, that is the Sea of Tiberias. Now, by the far shore, he means the eastern side, because um, the places Jesus was normally working were on the western side of the lake. And a great crowd of people followed him. It was quite a trip around the lake, but they, they came around and followed him because they saw the miraculous signs he performed on the sick. Then Jesus went up on a mountainside and sat down with his disciples, and the Jewish Passover feast was near. When Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming towards him, he said to Philip, where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? So John gives us the time of the year and those kind of eyewitness details. And Jesus asks Philip, 
Uh, and that makes sense in the, in the context of the rest of John's Gospel, because earlier on we learned that Philip was from Bethsaida, which is the nearby place. So if anybody was going to know where Sainsbury's was, it was him. And Jesus shows real concern and compassion for these thousands of people who've come after him. Well, Philip answered verse 7 with sort of incredulity. Eight months' wages would not buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. Uh, actually, eight months' wages is a, sort of, is a translator's attempt to get it. You'll see in the footnotes there, 200 denarii. Somebody's done some arithmetic and some economics and worked out that it was roughly speaking. About, I don't know what eight months' wages is now. Uh, I gather the national wage is £26,000 a year, so if that comes to about £17,000 or something like that, and if you spent that much money, it wouldn't be enough even to give people a tiny bit, that's what it says in the Greek, a little bit, a bite, uh, that just be a, 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 a slice of bread each or something for people to eat. There are so many of them. But then another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said, here is a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish. Well, it's a start, isn't it? But how far will they go among so many? And Jesus said, make the people sit down. Another little eyewitness detail, there's plenty of grass in that place. It's going to be comfortable to sit down and eat. That's because it was Passover time, spring, the fresh grass was growing. You sit down on the grass there. And so they sat down, 5,000 men. Jesus took the loaves, gave thanks, and distributed. How much is contained in that word? It's amazing, isn't it? Uh, as uh, To those who are seated, as much as they wanted. And he did the same with the fish. And when they'd all had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, gather the pieces that are left over. Let nothing be wasted. So they filled up 12 basketfuls with all the leftovers. It is extraordinary. Now, some people have, of course, over the years, been embarrassed by this. There was a great phase in... Uh, theology in the middle of the 20th century, you probably know, uh, where people were particularly embarrassed about the miracles of the Gospels and thought we have, if we're going to persuade uh, people nowadays, we have to find some other explanation. And William Barclay, who wrote lots of books of, uh, sort of popular Bible studies, wrote this about the feeding of the 5,000. I'm quoting from his comments on, the, uh, on Luke's uh, version of it. He says this, The people were hungry and they were utterly selfish. They all had something with them but they wouldn't produce it for themselves in case they had to share it with others. The twelve laid before the multitude their little store, and thereupon others were moved to produce theirs. And in the end, there was more than enough for everyone. So it may be regarded as a miracle which turned selfish, suspicious folk into generous people, a miracle of Christ's changing determined self-interest into a willingness to share. In other words, the feeding of the 5,000 was a very large version of what you might call a church bring-and-share lunch. (laughs) I had a colleague in Bournemouth who didn't enjoy those occasions very much. He called them grin and bear lunches. Uh, But that's the idea. You can see Barclay's embarrassed. But if that is the case, it raises the question, well, why did John bother to record it at all? Why does he clearly see it as a miraculous sign? Why, in fact, is it recorded by all four of the gospel writers? Why, the next day, were the people chasing him because they wanted more food? It just doesn't stack up unless we see that Jesus was able to do this creation miracle. Now, we may find miracles hard. 
the Bible helps us understand a sort of framework to put them in. The universe is not a closed system, but an open system, because God is there. God's created an orderly world, which is why science is possible. And the early chapters of Genesis stress what an orderly world he's made. And what we call the laws of nature, of course, are simply descriptions of the way God normally works. But as a creator, he has the authority to choose to vary those laws in exceptional circumstances, such as here. It is a miracle of creation. It's the second miracle of creation in John's Gospel. Jesus has previously been at that wedding in Cana of Galilee. Do you remember that? The embarrassing wedding reception where they ran out of wine. And if you do the maths, it's great having the footnotes in the NIV. uh, The the smallest estimate of the amount of wine he made was sufficient to fill a whole Ford Transit van with cases of wine. So beat that next time you go to the Channel Tunnel. And uh, Jesus' disciples weren't naive. People didn't wander around in those days thinking that people could just make things out of nothing. They found it perfectly astonishing. John wasn't embarrassed about it, or he'd have left it out. On the contrary, he recorded it because it actually happened. So here's a real miracle that the Lord Jesus does. But what's the point of it? We have to move on from a a view of the miracles of the Lord Jesus, which is sort of go and do likewise. Because quite clearly, uh, he's doing something here that nobody else can do. But what is the application? Well, the application is spread across the rest of the chapter. And and the main application will come on to after we've had coffee. But there are some things, even from this part of the account, which we can pull out and which John wants us to know. One thing is that this is about listening to Jesus. Verse 14. After the people saw the miraculous sign that Jesus did, they began to say, surely this is the prophet who is to come into the world. I mean, the obvious, the obvious things on your mind after somebody's done something like that is to say, who must this be? The question of his identity comes up, which incidentally would never have come if everybody had simply shared their lunch. When they say, surely this is the prophet who's to come into the world, they're looking back to the book of Deuteronomy and to Moses. Because God, through Moses, had promised to send another great prophet, in a sense, like Moses. And in Deuteronomy 18.18, we won't turn to it now, but you could jot that down. God said, I will raise up for them a prophet like you. From among their brothers, I will put my words in his mouth, and he will tell them everything I command them. Now, a prophet, of course, was a sort of an official spokesman for God. And that great promise was fulfilled in the line of prophets who came in the Old Testament. But always the promise was looking forward to a great individual who would be its ultimate fulfillment. How would people recognize this prophet when he came? Well, he'd be somebody like Moses. And actually, in this account that we're looking at, we see three different connections with Moses that happened at Passover time. Moses had done something amazing. He'd given the people manna in the desert. And later we're going to see how the waters, in a sense, there's a, there's a miracle concerning the waters as well. It all looks back to that. And Jesus is identified by the people here correctly as the prophet that Moses had looked forward to, that God had promised who would be like Moses. And if that's the case, 
What is the right reaction to him? Well, Deuteronomy 18, 19, I'll read out to you. Um, So, just turn back to that. After the promise of the prophet, God says, "I, I will put my words in his mouth and he will tell them everything I command him. If anyone doesn't listen to my words, the prophet speaks in my name. I myself will call him to account. So when God sends his prophet, the application point is, listen. And I think it's very important that we get that straight at the beginning of this section. John doesn't waste a word in the way he structures this account. Because Jesus is about to say a number of things which are going to sound quite hard-hitting and quite controversial. And right at the start of the message is, listen. He is the one. God sent into the world. Of course, John would have us know that the Lord Jesus is far greater than simply a prophet. He spills the beans, as you know, right at the beginning of the gospel in the prologue where he says, in the beginning was the word. And we know he's talking about Jesus and what comes later on. The word, he's called the word because he's God's communication to us. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And then... Everything was made through him. There's nothing out there that's been made, that, that wasn't made by him. And then, verse 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among. So Jesus is the eternal son of God who came into our world far greater even than a prophet. He's the one who is with God and who is God, who's come into our world. And that's all the more reason for listening to him. I remember when I was uh, at uh, school in the sixth form, doing English A-level, and uh, the teacher would drone on about the various uh, subtle meanings in the Shakespeare text that we were reading, and uh, I think it was King Lear or Antony and Cleopatra, Shakespeare must have been getting at this particular thing or that particular thing, and a naughty thought came into my head. What if Shakespeare himself were to walk into the classroom and sit at the back and listen to what Mr. Moran was saying? Would Mr. Moran actually be proved right? Of course, Shakespeare, as the writer of the play, has the ultimate right to interpret the meaning of the play and to tell us what it's all about. That's the point. The creator comes into the world. He has the right to interpret the world to us, doesn't he? Because he's the world's maker. And right at the start of this section, the living God is saying to us, will you listen to the one that I've sent? The other thing that's obvious from the feeding of the 5,000 is it's a little lesson in discipleship. I skipped over when I was reading it out, uh, verse 6, when um, Jesus asks Philip, uh, where shall we um, buy bread for these people to eat? Verse 6, Jesus says, he asked this only to test him, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. In other words, he wants his men to learn something from what he's about to do. And there's a little bit of a contrast here between Philip and Andrew. Um, Perhaps it's too blunt to call them a glass half empty and a glass half full sort of person. But Philip can only see the problem. You know, eight months' wages aren't going to make much of a difference to this, even if we spend all that money. Andrew, by contrast, comes with uh, five loaves and two fishes and sort of says, well, here's a start. And the lesson seems to be that given who Jesus is, He will multiply what we bring him if we will just do that. And you think of the way that Christianity has grown. It started with 12 men and now all over the world 
hundreds and hundreds of million people, millions of people who belong to Jesus. And don't you notice this in the way that God takes and uses people? I, it's one of the great perks, I was, I was saying to Matt last night, isn't it, of, of being in ministry, that you can see people change and grow. And you see how people come with the gifts that God's give them, given them and put them to the Lord's use, and he will multiply that. I had a friend uh, who's known to uh, one of you here in the church I served in Bournemouth who was painfully shy at school and uh, uh, quite introverted. He was marvellously converted at university. He went back and he started just to begin to talk to people about Jesus. And God just found a deflame that gift. So he was talking to everybody about Jesus. And people, bit by bit, there were people becoming Christians just through his conversations. And then we... We took him on as a church. We sent him to Cornhill course and he came back and, uh, and now he works full time for the church, um, getting around the area, talking to people about Jesus as well as uh, working his way around the sort of edges of the congregation as well. And it's amazing to me. What he did was he took, he, he took tie, in a sense, what looked like tiny resources that Jesus had given him. Or it might be the teacher who decides to uh, that they're in a school and I think, I'm just going to start a Christian union in this place or get stuck in with that. And they put their opportunities that Jesus has given them to work and he will multiply that out of all proportion. Or perhaps it's the way we use our money or some aspect of what God has given us as we lay it at Jesus' feet. It's a wonderful lesson, this. And a part of the lesson is don't wait for a bolt from the blue. Start with what you've got and get on with it and use it for Jesus. I think often we have a kind of unstated coolness. Well, I can ever really make any difference well that's Philip's attitude it's worth learning from Andrew here are five loaves and two fishes now let's look at the other of the things that happened that same day the walking on the water verse 15 Jesus knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force withdrew again to a mountain by himself now there is a problem at this point because uh, people fancy Jesus as a political leader and actually, who wouldn't? He can do a load of things that no other politician can do. We all know about this thing called quantitative easing, which appears to be the ability to magic money out of nowhere. But I gather, those of you a lot more high-powered in the economics and business world here will know that actually it has various consequences. But Jesus really can create resources from nothing. Of course they want to make him their king. Who wouldn't want to have a ruler like this who can feed them all the time? But he doesn't want that. He knows they've misunderstood his agenda. We'll come back to that later. So he heads off by himself. And evening comes and the disciples want to head back home. And he doesn't presumably want to go with them because the crowd's still there and they'll intercept him and try and make him king by force. So in a sense he's sort of hiding away. And they head off across the lake. And this storm whips up. And if you ever go to the Sea of Galilee, the tour guide on the bus will probably say, as he said to uh, our group, uh, it's famous for the way storms can just um, sort of blow up out of nowhere. And that's what happens. Uh, a rough wind was blowing and the water screw, strong wind was blowing and the water screw rough, verse 18. When they rode three and a half, uh, three or three and a half miles, so right out in the middle of the lake, they saw Jesus approaching the boat walking on the water, and they were terrified. But he said to them, it is I, don't be afraid. Then they were willing to receive him or take him into the boat, and immediately the boat reached the shore where they were heading. Extraordinary. He walks across the water, gets into the boat, 
the sea calms down and they reach their destination. Again, we have to say it's a miracle. You can guess what's coming next. Uh, the kind of demythologizing approach to this was to say, well, actually, he was near the edge, and there was a sandbar uh, by the edge, and uh, it's a bit like Pool Harbor, where you can walk out for a long way and only be up to here, um, if, you've, if you've been there. And um, uh, that doesn't quite account for the fact that uh, they were three or three and a half miles out in the middle, nor does it account for the fact that when they saw Jesus walking on the water, they were scared stiff. Now, these people knew the lake, so if he'd been on a sort of sandbank at the edge, presumably they'd say, oh, that's a, you're just getting your feet wet. What are you doing over there? But they were terrified. More terrified than they were by the wind and the waves. What is this? Who is this? And he gets in the boat, and they get to their destination. And again, it raises the question for us, who is this? And often the way with John's Gospel to get the clues is to go back to the Old Testament um, because Jesus in John's Gospel, remember, is the Christ. And whenever you see the word Christ in the New Testament, it's a way of saying Bible overview. He's the fulfillment of all the Old Testament hope. And in Psalm 77, the psalmist says of God himself, of the Lord, your path led through the sea, your way through the mighty waters. He was looking back to the great events of the Exodus when God led his people out of Egypt across the Red Sea to Sinai on their way to the promised land. It's only the living God who can do this. And there are a number of other places where you can find similar points made. It's time to reinstate King Canute. Now, King Canute has a bad reputation. Um, you often hear people talking about King Canute as if he... Um, he was, he was the bloke who wanted to show everybody that he could rule everything. So he goes down to the beach and tells the, uh, the tide not to come in. And uh, he gets egg on his face, or at least wet feet, because the, the tide does come in. Uh, that's the popular perception of him. So when I was preparing this, I, I looked up King Canute to see what I could find about this bloke. And it turns out to be quite the reverse. King Canute took his courtiers down to the beach because he wanted to show them the limits of the king's power. He wanted, them, he wanted to show them certain things I can't fix. So he takes them down to the beach, and this is what Henry of Huntingdon in Historia Anglorum says. Uh, so he goes down to the beach to try to show them that he can't make the sea stay out. When his orders were ignored, he pronounced, let all the world know that the power of kings is empty and worthless, and there is no king worthy of the name, save him by whose will heaven and earth and see, obey eternal laws. I think that's quite good, don't you? King Canute's gone up in my estimation. He's wanting to make the point that no earthly king can do this. Actually, John's wanting to make exactly the same point. They want to make him king by force. But they have, to use a George Bushism, misunderestimated him. He's a far, far greater figure than they imagine. He's one who can do things only the creator of the world can do. And we're going to see that he's come to sort out problems that no earthly king could sort out. And I take it there is a little lesson for disciples that John has here as well. He comes out to the one place where they thought he could never help them. Isn't that fascinating? They're sitting in the boat, there's the, the, the wind and the storms and so on. <clears throat> it's hard to know 
how the chronology of this matches the story in the other Gospels of the calming of the storm. But if you do look to the other Gospels, that comes earlier. So I can sort of imagine them. Um, they've learned a lesson there, but now they're thinking, there's no way uh, he can come. In. We so wish he'd come with us. We know he's very good at fixing these kinds of things. And somebody's unhelpfully singing with Jesus in the boat. You can smile at the storm. And then somebody else says, but he's not in the boat. <laughs> and it seems like a situation that nobody can fix. And he comes to them walking on the water. Totally unexpectedly. Even these storms cannot prevent God's people reaching the destination he has for them. We're going to see as we get on to the bigger meaning of these stories uh, after the break, that it's all about reaching heaven and security in Jesus. And he's going to feed them along the way, and he's going to make sure that they reach their destination. So when things come at you from all sorts of different directions, a bit like the water in the showers here, I noticed this morning. Uh, and, uh, and life can be very tough, can't it? Uh, the Lord Jesus knows, and he's the one who is not going to remove all those situations from us, but who's promised that we will reach the destination, just as he got these disciples across the lake. So if you're a Christian today, take, take to heart who Jesus is. Think again about his wonder and his majesty. And how he can multiply what you offer him, the loaves and the fishes. And take to heart that he's the one in whose name we pray. Are there any situations which you haven't committed to him in prayer because you think they're too hard for him to fix? Well, remember this one who could multiply and who came across the lake. Let's pray together now. Our Lord and Saviour, we praise and thank you for this uh, true eyewitness account of these majestic and awesome things which you did. Thank you for the reminder of your perfect creating majesty, your compassion for those people. Thank you for the way that uh, every atom and molecule in creation obeys you. And thank you for these lessons in discipleship. We pray that you'll help us to think through how we may be serving you and putting what we have at your feet, that you might multiply it. And thank you that you are the one in whose name we pray. Please help us never in our unbelief to think there are matters we cannot cry out to you about. And thank you for this wonderful uh, picture of the way you helped your disciples arrive safely at, the, at their destination. And we praise and thank you for the security which we have in you. Many great promises which we're going to see later. Amen.